So uh, Thomas Jefferson once described the Trinity like this. The metaphysical insanities of Athanasius, of Loyola, and of Calvin are, to my understanding, mere lapses into polytheism, differing from paganism only by being more unintelligible. <laughs> Jefferson, like many of our founding fathers, was a Unitarian, believing that God could not be three in one. To him, the concept made no sense and had to be discarded. If you talk to any Jehovah's Witness, they'll remind you that the word Trinity is never actually used in the Bible. They'll tell you that it was a concept made up by humans centuries after Jesus lived. The Trinity is a doctrine that puts us most at odds with the other Abrahamic religions, other people who derive their own faith from Abraham. We all believe that God is one, as we read all the time in the Old and New Testaments. So it seems like a three-personed divine being is impossible. But talk to any theologian and they'll remind you that all of your metaphors that you use to describe the Trinity, whether it's an egg with a shell yolk and white, or three leaves of a clover, or water that can be you know, solid and liquid gas, all of them actually illustrate some sort of ancient heresy that Christians have rejected for millennia instead of the actual orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. There's a hilarious video on YouTube that you can watch to illustrate the point. Just search for St. Patrick's bad analogies. You'll get the whole list of them. So the doctrine of the Trinity isn't used in the Bible. At its face, it seems logically impossible, and it's incredibly difficult to articulate without accidentally slipping into heresy, the fear that's in the heart of every preacher who preaches on Trinity Sunday. <laughs> it would be easiest if we would just ignore it or set it aside. It's more trouble than it's worth. And yet, the <laughs> You shouldn't be clapping for that part. <laughs> and yet the Athanasian Creed, one of the three historic creeds that we affirm as authoritative, opens like this. Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that they hold the Catholic or universal faith, which faith except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt they shall perish everlastingly. And the faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. It goes on to further state a long series of particular things about the Trinity that must be believed. Puts us in a bit of a conundrum, doesn't it? But as complex as it may seem, I believe that as we dive into the biblical and theological basis for the Trinity, we'll discover that it's more than just a technicality that we have to try and wrap our minds around. It's a beautiful truth that draws us into the worship of the God of the universe. Amen. So while it's true that the word Trinity is not found in scripture, what we say about the Trinity absolutely comes from scripture. Now the one part is easy to find, right? From the one God who made the earth to the, one of the first liturgical prayers in scripture in Deuteronomy 6, hear O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, to the 10 commandments, laws against idol worship, it's all over the place. It is very easy to prove that God is one from Scripture. So how do we get to God in three persons, blessed Trinity, as the hymn puts it? Well, something interesting happens as the New Testament writers start to speak about Jesus. Now, they never use the precise theological language that we have in the Athanasian Creed. At no point does the Apostle Paul say God is Trinity and Trinity and unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. But they did write and speak, as 1 John puts it, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
they wrote about their experiences. And their experiences started to raise some questions. I picture it because of the age of my children. It's like if they had a Lego structure that they had all put together, and then they discovered other pieces that should have been included in the first place. The design had to shift. Or perhaps they had some IKEA furniture and discovered that there's an entire series of bolts that they hadn't put in. So maybe a more adult reference, I get it. So look at how Paul opens his letter to the Colossians. He says this, he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. John has a similar sounding statement at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. So we believe that the one God created the world, but the New Testament tells us that Jesus was there. He was God, and yet he was also with God. So now we've got these two things. He is God, he's with God, and then the way Jesus speaks about God changes things as well. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is rarely spoken of as Father. We sing good, good Father now, but in the Old Testament, you more frequently read that God is one with whom Israel has a covenant. The relationship is frequently compared to a marriage, but not necessarily as father. But Jesus starts to really introduce God as his father and our father. Now there's, again, a new relationship, a new framework that we have to use in order to understand this God. And even though God is Jesus' father, Jesus seems to be conscious that he is acting as if he were God. Jesus is doing things that Yahweh had promised to do. So we see it in the way that he comes to heal, the way that Jesus claims to have authority to forgive sins, the way he commands the wind and the waves, the way that he presumes to have standing to judge the very temple itself, to have authority over the temple. Jesus enacts and fulfills things that only Yahweh was supposed to do. Jesus seems very aware of his vocation as standing in God's place. Now, reading from John's Gospel, Jesus speaks more clearly about his relationship with the Father than he does anywhere else. So he's talking with his disciples in what's often referred to as the upper room discourse. It's here where he's, it's sort of on Monday Thursday, he's about to go into his, into his passion to the cross, and so he's telling them everything that they need to know. One chapter, well, as much as he can. I mean, he said today, there's things I, I want to tell you, but you can't bear them. We read from chapter 16. In chapter 17, he'll say that he prays that his, his believers are united in the same way that he is united to the Father. And here in chapter 16, he says that everything the Father has is his. He speaks about sending the spirit of truth, the advocate, who is distinct, has a personality, has, you know, it's a, it's a he, right? Interacting with Jesus, taking what he hears and speaking it. So that now there's this spirit character as well who's an individual person. Something is going on that doesn't fit in the simple one God box. And then several times in the New Testament, all three get mentioned together, sometimes in very clearly 
Trinitarian ways, like in the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel, that we're told to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? But also in places like 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul says things like, I want you to understand that no one is speaking by the Spirit of God. No one who's speaking that way ever says, let Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 4, Paul will write that God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. See, all three are mentioned there. In 2 Corinthians, he prays that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We find that all three members of the Trinity get very intentionally put together in this group of three. Something is going on in the New Testament in which God has inspired these writers to give testimony to the fact that while God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, there is some deeper understanding of who God is. The God who made the universe is one, there is only one God, and yet there are these three persons who all do things that only God does. They're united with one another, relate to one another, relate to us differently, but are somehow united. None of these things on their own are sort of your silver bullet where you can say, see, baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinity. Because even though these concepts are all found in Scripture, or the blocks that would come together to form what we say about the Trinity are found in Scripture, it takes time for the church to develop clear statements about the Trinity. So ideas emerged and Christians thought and wrote more about God and applied their minds to these deep mysteries and certain ideas come to be accepted as consensus. And we believe that God worked through those early Christians to solidify and clarify our theology. So the first person to introduce the word Trinity into our vocabulary, vocabulary was a man named Tertullian in the late second, early third centuries. He's actually credited with inventing over a thousand new words and he's the one to use Trinitarian terminology, God being three persons, one substance. Now, he's clear that each member of the Trinity was distinct, but the members not divided. Different, but not separate. So what we say about this three-in-one God that we worship is somehow that all the members of the Trinity, fully God, three persons, not divided. This doesn't necessarily seem that much clearer, but it's clearer, right? Like we're heading in a direction here. So then over the course of the fourth century, the particulars just keep on getting hammered out. So there's disputes about whether Jesus was of the same being as God or similar, right? This is a controversy that, that a man named Arius brings up and says, Jesus is not the same as God, he's similar to God. He's of similar substance. Their, their rallying cry was, there was a time when he was not, as in Jesus was created at some point. Athanasius and his crew fight back, and eventually the same wins out, which is why in our Nicene Creed we say, true God of true God begotten, not made. Later there were disputes about whether the Spirit was in fact God in the same way, or just kind of a different mode of God, a different sort of version, a different face of God. In the end, the Spirit is to be declared a person with the same substance in the same way, and the heresy of modalism gets rejected. So the church came to believe that the Trinity was united in one substance, that each member was fully divine, and there was no hierarchy within the Trinity. Basil of Caesarea, this theologian in the late fourth century, he was a main voice in helping establish that the Holy Spirit was fully God. He was clear that none of the members of the Trinity are subordinate to one another. They are equal and fully God. There is no tiered system. There is no 
God and vice God. There is no deputy God in this trinity. They are all fully God completely and authoritatively. The, the Athanasian Creed will go on to say, but the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal, so that in all things, as is aforesaid, the unity and trinity and the trinity and unity is to be worshiped. They, therefore, that will be saved must thus think of the trinity. This language is exactly what Thomas Jefferson is criticizing, right? And we can understand why. It sounds impossible. It sounds like the kind of distinctions and details that someone understands, but you have to have some sort of advanced degree in philosophy to fully comprehend it. It's, it's why it's terrifying to preach on Trinity Sunday, right? This is an uncomfortable pulpit to be standing in. There's all these distinctions and qualifications and language traps. It seems to be too much, and yet, that is the point. Augustine said it well, that if you can fully understand it, then it isn't God. <laughs> if you can wrap your mind about, around it, if you can put your box around it and say, I've got it, then that thing is no longer God. Now, this isn't to say we know nothing of God. God has revealed to us some of who God is, and yet there's always the temptation to think that we have fully plumbed the depths of God, that we can totally summarize, categorize, and predict God. Isn't that the very temptation in the garden? The temptation to try and grasp at full knowledge, imagining that we could become like God. If I just get this information, then I can become like God. And if I can become like God, I don't need God anymore. I know everything he knows. I can do everything he does. So here we are. And what if instead of approaching the Trinity like a problem to be solved, like a formula that we have to keep on figuring out how to better describe, as if we could step behind the curtain and finally and completely explain the infinite source of reality itself, what if we allowed ourselves to receive God's beauty and sta stand in awe of God's mystery? So rather than consign the Trinity to this theological litmus test that we preach about every year one week after Pentecost, today on Trinity Sunday, let's make its beauty and mystery the foundation of our theology, letting it shape how we think about God. Sure, absolutely, the way we speak about the Trinity has limits and boundaries that we must follow. There are, of course, disastrous reasons. If the Holy Spirit's not fully God, a lot of things go awry. If Jesus is not fully God, a lot of things go awry. If the Trinity could be at odds with itself, you can see downstream how things go wrong. But thinking about the Trinity, writing about the Trinity, believing about the Trinity, it's more poetry than science. Church fathers use the word perichoresis to describe the Trinity, which means going around, going in a circle, constantly together. What if we took the things that we say we believe about God and instead of trying to grasp on them, let them fill us with awe? At the end of the day, all theology should lead us ultimately to worship. Worship not just about us having an experience of getting to encounter God, but worship hitting the end of ourselves, the end of our own comprehension and understanding, and giving praise to the one from whom all things flow. One of my favorite poems is by Robert Frost. It's called Choose Something Like a Star, and I think it's a great example of what I'm talking about. So here it is. O star, the fairest one in sight, we grant your loftiness the right to some obscurity of cloud. It will not do to say of night, since dark is what brings out your light. Some mystery becomes the proud, but to be wholly taciturn in your reserve is not allowed. 
Say something to us we can learn by heart and when at home, repeat. Say something and it says, I burn. But say with what degree of heat, talk Fahrenheit, talk centigrade. Use language we can comprehend. Tell us what elements you blend. It gives us strangely little aid, but it does tell something in the end. And steadfast as Keats' Aramite, not even stooping from its sphere, it asks a little of us here. It asks of us a certain height. So when at times the mob is swayed to carry praise or blame too far, we may choose something like a star to stay our minds on and be stayed. I've always understood Frost to be criticizing our need to assign numbers and quantities to everything in order to give them meaning. And instead, Frost invites us to contemplate things that are beautiful and transcendent, fix our minds upon them and be stayed. He may have been speaking about nature, he may not have had God in mind, but for me, this poem has always spoken to my own life of faith, my own desire to have things figured out, to have language, to be able to describe things, and that I reach the end of my own language and need to, at some point, step back and accept that God is mysterious and that I cannot understand who God is. Beauty and mystery are at the heart of the Trinity, and they ought to be the foundation of our worship. We see some of this in Isaiah in our reading this morning. In the year King Uzziah dies, Isaiah finds himself in the heavenly throne room and collapses in awe, taken aback by God's holiness. In our reading from Revelation, at the start of John's visions, his visions proper, after he's written to each of the churches, he too finds himself in the heavenly throne room. He's in front of a sea of glass, the sea usually being a symbol of chaos, but the waters have been stilled by the one who created them. Living creatures, the whole of creation, worship the God who was and is and is to come. This is the biblical account of encountering God, is not to arrive and say, God, I have some questions for you. God, let me ask you these things. We talk about this all the time, right? When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God this. No, <laughs> friends. And you won't want to because it won't matter. And you won't want to because when you are confronted with the God who is holy and other and beautiful and awful, full of awe, you will stop. It will be something else. We get bits and pieces of it, I think, when we encounter any sort of transcendence here on earth. I think when you're confronted with everything from a glorious sunset to the beauty of nature, to a beautiful painting, to a beautiful work of art, sometimes as humans we hit something that is transcendent and we just know something. We may not be able to put our finger on it, and frequently those who do and spend time writing extensively about it in dense, thick prose don't do the thing justice. <laughs> Oftentimes, the description of a painting is significantly worse than the painting itself, right? Oftentimes, you'll watch a movie, and afterwards, you'll read a review, and you feel like, that just doesn't capture it. That doesn't capture the experience of it. And I believe that's a thing that God put in our hearts to want to encounter transcendence, because he himself, he, God's self, <laughs> is transcendent. And I think we're hardwired for that because we are meant to view the transcendent God with the same kind of awe and mystery. And yet, don't miss this. The God we have come to learn, who has always been Trinity, we believe, in relationship, in a dance with God's self in a community of being, who has no need of us, who strikes awe in everyone who comes near, chose to forever be united to humanity in the incarnation of Jesus. 
and chose to send the Spirit to dwell within us as comforter and advocate and to intercede for us when words fail. This God, eternal, unchangeable, unknowable, chose to become known to us in Christ, chose to continue to be revealed through the power of the Spirit. This God who is eternal has invited us to join in the dance. This isn't an invitation to check your brain at the door. It's an invitation to learn more, but acknowledge the limits of our knowledge. We can all say that God is one being and three persons, one substance. You can go and read the Athanasian Creed. It is long. It is not poetry. <laughs> it says all the things it needs to say, but you can find all the things and do so. It's helpful. Those things are correct. But allow yourself to be drawn into the mystery to plumb its depths. Ben Myers, in his introduction to a book on the Apostles' Creed, says this, we are not beggars hoping for scraps. We are like people who have inherited a vast estate. We have to study the documents and visit different locations because it's more than we can take in at a single glance. In the same way, it takes considerable time and effort to begin to comprehend all that we have received in Christ. Theological thinking does not add a single thing to what we have received. The inheritance remains the same whether we grasp its magnitude or not, but the better we grasp it, the happier we are. He writes this because the Apostles' Creed, short and succinct, we sang it in our, our first song this morning, contains all, he says, all the things you need to know about God, and all theological thinking is just developing those ideas. The best theologians you will read are not people who presume to have figured everything out. They're people who, as they study God, seem to be more and more in wonder as it happens. Theological thinking can be an act of worship as well if we are situated in right relationship to the God of the universe. And so my invitation to us this morning is to stand in awe to recognize God for who God is and to allow ourselves to be drawn further up and further in. We will never reach an end. We will only find new depths to marvel at. Allow your knowledge of God not to be a thing to be grasped, but a thing that causes us to fall on our knees in worship of the one who is incomprehensible and yet chose to become knowable, who has been eternally in the dance of the three-in-one but has welcomed humanity into the circle. May God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit bless us and strike us fresh this morning with awe and wonder. Amen.